So, wow. I mean, as a woman and as a mother. Thank you. I feel like Alan and I should just go home. (laughs) Because, I mean, anything that we're going to say this morning, what she has just done for us is she has shared how she lived what we're going to say. And there is a way in which, you know, we all know our lives, there is suffering and pain and there are joys and there is love and there's faithfulness and somehow it all is one life. And um, so, and as a spiritual director, in addition to being a mother and a woman, I just feel like I want to stop and honor your story for just a moment. And I'm just deeply moved by where you ended up. And um, basically, it's this kind of stuff we wrote about in this book that we just wrote that won't come out until next year. But you ended up in the very place that God invites us all, which is to remember the word from this season, which is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's exactly where you ended up. And as you were speaking about halfway through, I I was thinking that you were, I could just see you sort of being held and nestled in the center of the Trinity. There's something about that depth of pain that there's just a sense of being held. And even though when you're living it day to day, it may take a longer time to get to the, the felt sense of that, but because you stayed open, and willing in the midst of the pain, you have a deeper sense of knowing. There's a deeper knowing that's even beyond our belief and our faith, but somewhere deep inside of you, the reality abides. So thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. your story. Um, did not plan to stand up here and cry. Will you indulge me while we shift gears just a bit? We are going to talk about joy today. And um, actually, the week of Advent, uh, joy is actually next week, but we're going to bring it here into the week of peace, if you don't mind. Um, This last week, we were in Avila, and we finished our second draft, uh, second draft edits of the book, which again is called, um, What Does Your Soul Love? And the subtitle is Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. And it sort of got birthed. Um, we didn't know this was going to be the outline of the book. That happened after the fact. But uh, these eight questions sort of got birthed out of a question that I asked God in prayer. And it was sort of something like, how did I get where I am? How did I get at the time, whatever, how old I was? It was in my 40s probably. Um, I had lived a life of faith. I had leaned in when possible. I had stayed on a journey of transformation in my own way with God, and I was sort of in an assessment mode. How did this happen? I kind of like where I'm at now. I like how you and I are relating. I like the level of transformation you've allowed in my life. How did this happen? And so over the course of a few months, I kept getting a few different ideas of how it happened. It ended up being about seven ideas as we started to turn it into a book, it turned to eight, and then we turned them into questions. So today we're going to talk about one of the chapters, which is called Joy. What does your soul love? 
So what I'm going to do this morning is just share with you a couple of memories from my childhood. And I'm going to ask you to just hold them as metaphors inside of you. And as Alan comes, and he's going to uh, bring John 15 to us. Um, but if we travel back, I grew up in a really small town in Washougal, Washington, which no one has ever heard of, but it's on the Columbia River. And we had six acres. And four of them were pasture. And I had a horse. So picture little me um, with really long, dark hair. This is important because you're going to need a visual, like really long black hair. And I would go out to where the gate was between our yard and the pasture, and I would call my horse. This was in the summertime. Beautiful Palomino. You guys know what a Palomino looks like, the blonde? It's a fully blonde horse with the blonde mane and the blonde tail. I would call my horse over to the gate. I would climb up on the fence, and I would just get on her and ride bareback with no bridle and no saddle. So I would hunker down and hold on. Has anyone ever ridden a horse bareback? You've got to, like, really hold on. And so I'm holding on to the mane, and then I would just kick her sides, and we would just take off. And I had many ways that I liked to ride through this field. Sometimes I would trot around the whole four acres and just do the perimeter and take in all the beautiful uh, nature. We, had, we lived up against a forest in our backyard. Uh, there was a pond out front. It was beautiful. Sometimes I would just go one way or another and just gallop from one end all the way to the other. So I just did what I wanted to do. And the thing about it was is I was always safe. My mom didn't have to go with me. She could see me from the window. And there was a barbed wire fence around the whole thing. So I was completely and utterly safe within our pleasant boundaries of our home. And I had the wind whipping through my hair and the sun on my face and that, you know, that idyllic childhood moment. So the pasture, the expansive pasture is one memory I'd like you to hold in your mind. Another memory I have is... um, in my childhood years as well, we always went to the county fair every summer, like we have around here, except it was smaller. Um, you know, the quilts and the cannings and the livestock and all of that. But um, one time on our way out, my dad and I were walking by this building that said Fun House on it. Now, I was a kid, so I thought it meant what it said. I thought it was a fun house. You guys are older, so you already know what's inside. I didn't know. We go in there, and it's pitch dark, and it's a maze and loud music and very scary. And I wanted to back out right then, but for some reason we decided to keep going. And it's that the thing that you expect. You're just bumping into walls and you're making lefts and you're making rights and everything is scary because you can't see anything. We get almost to the end and we bump into a final wall and then this square lights up and there's a scary clown head in there. <laughs> The light bulb goes off, and an alarm goes off. Everything gets really loud, and I'm screaming my head off. Of course, my dad, I don't know who knows what my dad is doing. He's probably just laughing at me. Let's get on out of here. Finally make our way out, left, right, left, right, bump into to walls, get out. Never want to do that again. Never have done that again. So that's the other sort of memory I want you to hold. There's sort of this one image of a, of a dark, scary maze with lefts and rights, and you never know what's going on, and how am I going to do this? And then this beautiful, expansive pasture of freedom and joy to go within my pleasant boundaries. 
And I realized as I was thinking about those two memories, um, sometimes in my earlier years of being a Christian, I sort of had this image that the Christian life was sometimes like that maze. There's only one way out, and I don't know what it is. And I'm making lefts, and I'm making rights, and I'm bumping into things. And uh, I don't know what that means about me and my own <laughs> inner life. But, you know, that sense of being constricted sometimes that we let ourselves be in and we think there's, there's not as much freedom. And as I've got, gotten older, as time has progressed, I've grown more and more to see the Christian life as this beautiful, beautiful, spacious place that God has uh, provided pleasant boundaries for me. You know, in John 10, he says, I'm the gate. He also says, I'm the good shepherd. So you have an image of Jesus being both the one that, that lets us out into the pasture, and he's the one that goes with us. And so I guess before Alan comes up, uh, one of the questions I would love to have us hover over as he's speaking about joy is, what, what image do you have of God or his kingdom? What images have you had over the course of your life? Do you sense an expansive pasture, or do you sense a constricted maze? And maybe you have experienced both. But let's hold those in our hearts now as Alan brings John 15. So to talk about joy, to talk about joy in the face of realities. How strong is joy? How potent is joy? Is joy no bigger than, it's been a good month. Things are going pretty good. I'm happy. Is that as deep as it goes? Does joy only work when you get a bonus at the end of the year? Does joy work when you lose your job at the end of the year? How deep does joy go? How real is joy. And so, in addition to John 15, which was our reading today, I want to take you to a number of passages because I think it's absolutely critical for us. We're living in a season, you know, joy to the world. <clears throat> and then we're being told joy will come if we buy the right things, right? And give the right gifts to people. You know, and then you'll be happy. Then you'll be joyful. But I just think the gospel has a joy to offer us that is beyond imagining. The potency of the joy that, that is the atmosphere of the kingdom of God is remarkable. And so let me begin with that passage we read just a bit ago. And I want you to hear in it, maybe a line uh, you didn't particularly focus on. It just again says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So remain in my love. Stay there. Stay in the place of my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. And then this line. I've told you this, so that my joy might be in you, 
and that your joy may be complete. See, we live in a world that believes joy or happiness or whatever is somewhere else. I've got to go find it. I've got to achieve it. I've got to purchase it. I've got to acquire it. But it's somewhere else. That's what we're told. Our well-being, our happiness, and to use the biblical word even, our joy is somewhere else. And if it's somewhere else, the question then becomes, will I find it? How much will I need to spend? How long will I have to look? How far away is it? But joy is as far away from you as you, because joy is here. Joy is among us, but better than that, joy is within us. Joy is already here. Joy doesn't need to be sought somewhere else. It doesn't require some massive project of effort to find. He says, what I've told you, I've said so that my joy may be in you. So first question you have to ask is this. Do you believe, do you know, that no one is more joyful than God? If you imagine God, do you imagine a God who warmly smiles when you look at each other? That when God thinks of you, his heart absolutely fills with joy. I'll be honest, there have been times when I imagined the God who looked at me had a clipboard and there were quite a few boxes unchecked. And I kind of imagined God sort of scowling a little bit, looking slightly disappointed, a little bit frustrated, because I hadn't done quite as well as I should have done. Any of you identify with that feeling? The sort of God who I haven't quite measured up to the expectations God might have had. We have a lot of parents here, as can be told by the number of empty seats now. (laughs) Right? When you think of your children, and you experience joy, doesn't that feel good? Now, sometimes they do stupid stuff. They don't obey like they're supposed to. Okay, let's be honest. None of us have any perfect kids. Our, Our boys are all... Grown-ups now with beards, and some of them are bigger than me, so I can't even discipline them anymore. You know. But I have joy for my sons because, just because they're my sons. Sometimes they do great things, sometimes not. But I feel a deep joy because they are my sons. Don't you? In your best moments, don't you feel that? Sometimes you don't, but in your best moments. You know where you learn that? You know where that comes from? That comes from a heavenly father 
who is full of joy when he thinks of you. The fruit of the Spirit is, and you know the list, I'm sure many of you could just start rattling off the nine words, love. And the second one, there it is already, joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and others because that's who God is. The fruit of the Spirit isn't separate from God. The fruit of the Spirit is who God is. God is loving. No surprise. How many times do the Scriptures say that to us? But God is joyful. That's one worth chewing on a little bit. Because again, sometimes my image of God has been sort of my dad on a bad day. You know? But see, God knows everything about me. God knows what I intend even when I don't fulfill what I intend. God knows what's in my heart. And when God looks at me, God is full of joy. And then, as amazing as it, as it could possibly be, that God is with me. Emmanuel, right? This season. That's one of our words. God with me. And take it a step deeper. Christ in me. This joyful, most joyful being is as close to me as I am to myself. So think about when Jesus says these words. Later that very same day, the Jesus they've spent three years walking through Israel, watching Him do amazing things, healing, saying things that just were so un unbelievably smart. They will lose Him this night. They'll watch Him be arrested this night when He says these words about joy. And they're not going to be tempted to think, I don't know what Jesus was talking about. He wants his joy to be in me. He wants that joy to be full. Now he's arrested. Now he's being beaten. And you know the rest of the story. Where's the joy there? That's not a joyful story, at least in, as they're experiencing it. We can look back 2,000 years. Okay, that's easy for us. There's all kinds of stories right now that when we look back from 2,000 years from now, we're going to see with perspective we couldn't possibly have here. Couldn't possibly. Too close to it. Even 10 years later, too close to it. Even 20 years later, too close to it. But 2,000 years from now, we're going to look at our lives and see things we could never see before. And one of the things we're going to see is how somehow, unimaginable as it is, that God was a joyful being in the midst of it all. So, what I found myself asking is this, what if joy, what if my joy is not some consumer item that I have to go out and find? Like, my joy will be better if I upgrade my iPhone 8 to one with an X on it. Boy, now I'll be joyful for a long time. We all know better than that. I mean, I've had the experience, I remember as a kid, 
you get up and there's all these boxes and I'm tearing through boxes and I'm getting all my presents and now the presents are done. And now I'm mildly depressed. <laughs> so all the promises about, you know, the commercials promising your children will be very joyful if you buy them this thing. Or maybe not. Maybe joy is a relationship to deepen rather than a frantic search for some prize out there that I'm having a hard time locating. Maybe joy is not a consumer good I'm trying to get enough of. Maybe joy is a reality of soul for which I actually have an abundant supply. You see, the thing is, the theme of this book that we've been writing is that we've come to believe that joy is an engine for transformation. Why am I living this life in Christ? Is it just a sense of duty to do the right things? Or is it because there isn't a better life available to me than this very life I'm living? This life in the kingdom, this is as good as it can possibly get. I'm slowly learning that. Because sometimes I believe other things. You know, three years ago, we stepped away from a nonprofit with which we'd had 25 years of history. And now in our 50s, we're starting something new. That was not on my long-term plan. And it was scary. Completely scary, because we had no idea if it would work. Now, from this vantage point, looking back three years, it's been a wonderful decision. But in the middle of it, it was scary. But right there in that moment, there was joy in the heart of God that he was so wanting for us to grasp, to trust, to feel. So joy helps us realize that obedience isn't something we muscle our way into, grunting and sweating. Joy is like an engine for obedience. For doing what is good because it is good and is joyful. So I just think there's something beautiful and energizing about God as the most joyful being in existence. And being able to feel that. So this morning we're walking our dog. I'm walking our dog. He's a little gray wawa. That's Italian greyhound half and chihuahua half. He weighs five pounds. Me walking this dog looks very silly. I should be walking, you know, like a Doberman or something, I, I feel like, instead of Lex. <clears throat> but I'm walking the dog. I'm walking up the street. And I just, I just had this moment. I'm looking up and I'm seeing the sun that's come up from behind Saddleback Mountain, which is sort of our... Uh, eastward view from where we live. And I'm just seeing that sun kind of shine down on our street and the houses and the trees. I just had this moment of, you really are joyful. Like somehow Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had created a sunrise. They'd done this a few times before. Right? But they don't seem bored with it yet. It was just this beautiful, simple glow 
of the sun shining on our little world, on our little street, on this little morning. That there is a sense in your world, on your street, in your job, in your circumstances, that there is a joyful God there. Now, I want to unpack just a couple of other passages that I think can help us lean into this joy in the midst of the realities of our lives. Because things don't always feel joyful, do they? I mean, if you read An Unhurried Life, you'll know that we went through a season where one year dad dies of cancer, and the next year we experience a miscarriage, and the next year I lose my job, and the next year our house is destroyed by the Northridge quake. And the story continues. It's not as difficult a story as others, but we all have places that we wish we hadn't found ourselves. We all experience things we wish had never happened. And the question becomes, who is God there? Is God still the God of love, the God of joy, the God of peace, and so on? So one of the other passages we wrote about in this chapter is just unpacking Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you've ever read that letter, many of you I'm sure have, you'll know that one of the main ideas of that letter is the the word joy. There's probably no other letter Paul writes to any church that has more to say about joy than this one that he writes to the church of Philippi. But remember, he writes this letter sitting in a Roman prison. Not my first choice for digs, right? If I'm in a Roman prison, I'm not going to be writing a letter about joy, I don't think. It's not going to be my first thought. Not only is he in this Roman prison writing a letter to this church, but as you read the letter, you realize there are some men out there, some people out there, doing the kind of work Paul had been doing, and they're really doing it to spite him. Like, Paul's in prison. We can be evangelists. We can be pastors. Paul's stuck in prison. He can't do that. I mean, they're purposely trying to make him feel bad by doing the good work of ministry. It's hard to imagine that happening. But that's happening to Paul. It's like, yeah, Paul used to be the big guy on campus, but now we are because he's in prison. They're trying to make him jealous. It's crazy. Not only that, but as you continue to read this letter, it also looks like there's some real self-confident leaders who've been emboldened to compare themselves with Paul in his absence. You know, in chapter 3, you can read about Paul kind of giving his credibility list. He says, does anyone think they have reason to be confident in the flesh? Hey, let me give you my list. But he's in prison. Sort of like everyone says, yeah, so what? So, The situation, excuse me, the situation that Paul is experiencing as he writes this letter to the Philippians about joy and about joyful he is, is not a happy situation. This is what I mean by saying that the message of joy in the kingdom of God is potent enough, strong enough to meet us wherever we find ourselves. It was potent enough to meet Paul in prison 
surrounded in a situation where people were purposely trying to make him feel bad there. So his circumstances do little to inspire joy, and yet he's joyful. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an invitation? One of the little phrases he uses more than once, in fact, it shows up three different times in his letter, is this phrase, and it'll be a familiar one. You've heard this many times. The phrase is simply this, rejoice in the Lord, right? You've heard that. Philippians 4.4, it shows up twice. Beginning of chapter 3, it shows up once. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the invitation. Because there are situations where to, to tell someone rejoice in your situation would be a cruel thing to say. Right? This is too hard. This is too painful. Paul, in prison, surrounded by a situation he wouldn't have chosen if someone had said, how would you like to spend the next three months? Paul probably wouldn't have said, I think a Roman prison just sounds great. I'm sure Paul didn't choose that. And yet somehow here, three different times he says, I'm learning here to rejoice in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, partly it means Paul realizes that the God who is with him, even in this Roman prison, is a God of measureless joy. This is who God is. When you have your quiet time, what kind of a God are you meeting with? Is he a joyful one? The answer actually is yes, he is. Do you feel that? Is that your vision of the God with whom you sit and read scriptures or the God with whom you meet in prayer? Not joyful in the sense that he's got a goofy, silly grin that doesn't face reality, okay? Like he's the eternal optimist even when things go bad. Joy is better than that. It's the kind of joy that could face painful realities with a vision of something bigger and more real, even still in the midst of those things. It's more of a joy in than it is a joy about. It's more of a joy in than it is a joy about. You see, his joy is relational rather than being situational. His joy is about a person he's spending his life with, not about a situation that's going the way he likes. Can you feel the difference there? If I'm only joyful because things are going well, what will happen when things don't? That is a very painful roller coaster to ride. So joy is relational more than it is situational. Joy is a kind of lightness and a kind of energy that bubbles up from the place of being at home in the presence of a God who smiles. It's realizing this is who God is. This is the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is the most joyful place you can possibly imagine. But again, joy is not just, hey, everything's happy, nothing bad happens. See, I think of this fall that I've 
just come through. There was a window of 70 days where I was out of town or out of country, 50 of them. In fact, you may or you may not know that you all as a community were a part of helping that happen. You were a part of helping Jim and I go and serve Navy chaplains in Germany, not far from Munich. You were a part of helping us serve a group of Russian pastors at a Lutheran seminary a little outside of St. Petersburg. If you sit with those folks, those Russian pastors, you'll hear their stories of their parents and their grandparents living under Soviet rule. And you'll hear stories about what it was like to have grandpa in a prison in Siberia and once a year they could go visit him. That doesn't sound very joyful. That sounds awful. Except you'll find these people to be incredibly joyful because their joy is rooted in a person, not in a happy situation. We live in one of the most wealthy parts of the planet, don't we? I mean, someone says what? The California is, I think, the fifth largest economy in the whole world, even compared to nations. And then we live in one of the wealthier parts of that Do you look around and see lots and lots of joyful people? Just everyone's just smiling on the freeway? Just happier than happy? You go to the mall and they're all just grinning with joy because look at all we got. We got everything everybody promised would make us joyful. So they're all grinning and happy, aren't they? No, they are not. You can sit on that freeway and you just feel like you are surrounded by enemies. Any moment, they'd like to just cut you off as soon as drive past you. I mean, people who are angry and driven and somehow the promise isn't working so hot for them. We have a gospel, a message, a vision that Jesus has given us, a kingdom in which we are at home. And this is the most joyful place there is. And this is part of what Jesus so wants us to know and to trust, no matter what it is we're experiencing in the realities of our day-to-day experience. I just want to unpack a final passage or two. So there's a very famous line about joy. You'll recognize it. It comes from the book of Nehemiah. It sounds like, <coughs> it sounds like this. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for, here it comes, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Remember that line? You heard that one before? The joy of the Lord is our strength. What's that mean? It means that a vision of joy as the greatest reality surrounding us as God is with us strengthens us. The opposite is also true. A vision of life that's empty or discouraging weakens us. Joy strengthens us, but a vision of a hopeless situation, a vision of a God who doesn't smile, that has a way of draining us. 
There's one last passage that has been very helpful to me. I'm going to turn to it because I think it really helps us feel. This is from the book of Habakkuk, one of the prophets. It's the last lines. And what he's been talking about quite often in his letter is he's in a tough spot. He's a prophet speaking to the people in some tough situations. Things have not gone well for the people of God at the time at which Habakkuk is a prophet for them. And he ends the letter with these words. Listen to them. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Imagine you're a farmer, and you just had to say those sentences. Can you imagine that? You're a farmer. You look in your orchard at the fig trees. Nothing. Then you look out in the vineyard, that part of your property. And you look at all the vines. Nothing. You look at the olive trees. Maybe something there. The crop fails, it says. You look at the fields where you've planted. Maybe it's wheat. Maybe it's something else. Something's happened. There's no wheat. So everywhere you look, every hope you had for your very livelihood is a fail. No sheep in the pen. No cattle in the stalls. This is a, this is a tough situation. Fair enough? I mean, right? Haven't you been at times? Don't we experience moments where we just feel like we're looking and instead of everything going the way we hope it would, it's absolutely not that. And he keeps saying, though the fig tree, though the olive crop, though no sheep, no cattle. And then verse 18, little teeny tiny word, becomes a hinge on which the door swings. Though, 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 and then, yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will be joyful in God my Savior. And then this little visual. The sovereign Lord is my strength. There's a connection again between joy and strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He's not saying this God, when everything seems to be failing, makes everything all better. He doesn't say that. He says somehow he shows me how to climb those mountains. It's not easy. But the sovereign Lord is my strength. Though this and though that and though the other. Yet, yet I will rejoice. Yet speaks to a source of joy that comes from beyond my immediate pain or loss or suffering that absolutely seeks to overwhelm me and become my entire world. Of course it does because of how much it hurts or how much the loss impacts us. 
But Habakkuk says, though and though and though, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's an opportunity to respond to the reality of God in the midst of the reality of my situation. Joy doesn't ignore hardship. Joy doesn't pretend. What joy does, it gives us a way forward to see something bigger than the biggest pains and the biggest losses that are very real in our lives. Joy is just bigger than that. And that's the invitation of Jesus. For the joy set before him, he leaned that evening when he had spoken the words about joy to his followers. For the joy set before him, he is about to experience an unimaginable 24 hours. And somehow he sees in the midst of that something bigger than the immediate and unimaginably painful reality of that moment. Joy is already here. In the midst of your busy Christmas season and you're not yet finished shopping lists and all of the other planning that you need to do and whatever else it is that fills your December, you have a God who is joyful. That's worth holding on to. That's worth chewing on. That's worth learning how to more deeply trust. I'm going to ask if Jim would come and just lead us in a very simple exercise that I think will help us enter into that reality, that joyful reality. As Alan said, in, in any circumstance that we find ourselves, we can lean into joy. And so I thought I would lead us in a prayer here. It's Psalm 100 and verses 1 through 5. If you'd like, you can close your eyes. This is going to be like a prayer. I'm going to read some phrases and then offer maybe some guidance for how you might rest in what it says, embrace what it says, and maybe even going full circle back to the beginning. Can you picture yourself in that expansive pasture, the freedom, the joy? as we hear Psalm 100. So let's pray. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Shout for joy to the Lord. You might not think of shouting in the midst of a guided prayer, but shouting communicates a strong response. So let your heart be loud in response to God, even if you're being mostly quiet in these moments. How might you allow your heart and mind to respond with strength, with energy, with joy to God who is with you here and now. The prayer continues 
with these words, Worship the Lord with gladness. It's a prayer of gladness, of joy, of buoyancy of heart. Let the joy of God with you bubble up in your thoughts and emotions. Think about reasons you have to be joyful right here and right now. The prayer continues. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Another psalm prayer invites us to be still and know that I am God. Let's allow these moments of silence and stillness to be a time of remembering, of awareness, of recognition that God is God. God made us. We are his beautiful work of art. His beautiful work of art. We belong to God. And because God made us, we belong to him. He wants us because he made us. Let your soul rest here in joy for just a few moments. God shepherds his people. We are God's beloved people. And he cares for us like a shepherd does his sheep. And even if we struggle with feeling like we belong, we can find rest in the fact that we are his. He is our shepherd and he will never leave us. The prayer closes with these words. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So in your heart, offer words of thanks for good things God has done. Offer words of appreciation for who God is in your life.
The Lord is good, and his love endures forever. Amen.